Well, good morning, Austin Oak Church. How are we doing? I am freshly sunburnt because, surprise, surprise, Texas decided to get really hot again. Um, name is Brand Zinski, the senior pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. If you are a guest visiting with us, we are so delighted to have you. We want to let you know that we're a church that strives to be simply all about Jesus. And also this morning is actually a time of celebration because this is our first Sunday as a merged service with our classic service and our contemporary service. We want to say, hey, welcome. Love you. So glad to have you with us. Um, and for those of you who are like, like coming in a little bit late that are normally part of the contemporary service, and you're like, where's my seat? Listen, get over it. Find a new seat, okay? Meet some new friends. It's really, really good. Like we believe that God has led us to a generational moment. We believe that God is doing something in our midst that he's springing up, that he is doing, and he's asking us to perceive it. And we need every generation to reach the next generation. And one of those moves where we needed to get everybody together because we want to be able to rub shoulders and collide with each other and, and get to meet and know each other. And as we do that, we do expect God to be on the move and changing lives and becoming a... Uh, causing our church to become a discipleship movement that will saturate this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so let me explain to you a little bit about these next three weeks. We were going to do this earlier in January, but I got COVID. I wasn't able to do it. And so these three weeks are called Ears to Hear. And that's not a pithy sermon series title. And so where this came from was back in the summer coming out of the sabbatical, um, I was challenged by God, I believe it was by God, and also a mentor that was just like, Brandon, how many times do you actually go into the week, like praying and asking God specifically for a message for your church, specifically in that time, in that context, without going, hey, we have this sermon series planned for six months, you already know what the message is, and you're going to go through all of those things. And I was like, well, I've never done that. And he's like, do you think that the Lord can speak specifically to your church? I was like, yes. So I was like, okay, I'll carve out some time where I'll go into Monday morning not having a clue what I'm preaching on the following Sunday. So that's what the next three weeks are. So like coming into it, like I really was praying. I was like, God, what is it that you want to say to our local church? And spending time seeking him and talking and listening and discerning. You know, I do believe that God started to stir some things on my heart. And it resonates with a lot of things that God has been already doing in our church. And like what I'm going to kind of talk about this morning is, Lord, revive us again. And so the next three weeks are going to be kind of like in that camp, in that seat. And I was a little bit surprised as the direction where this message was going this morning. And I pray and I trust that it's going to be a challenge to you. And I pray and trust that you're going to walk out of here with an awakened heart and a desire to want to know Jesus more. And so let's start by doing this. Let's go a little bit like what we used to do back in the day. Let's stand as we come and read God's word together. It's going to be Psalm 85. Psalm 85 verses 4 through 6. Return to us. God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Lord, I pray that your spirit speaks clearly, 
Lord, I think of the churches in Revelation that the Spirit of the Lord had a specific message for each church in a specific time in its context. So God, I pray that you would do that this morning. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts. Lord, would you revive us again? Would you do something in our hearts that we would have to see to believe that could be only defined by you? God, grow in us a passion for your name. Make us humble and make us hungry for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And as you take a seat, I want to encourage you, meet someone you've never met before and just say how glad you are to meet them this morning. See, this is, this is great for me because I get to watch, I get to see out here who the extroverts are and who the introverts are. Like the introverts just kind of like did this quick thing like, hey, right? And some of you extroverts are finally sitting. Way to go. Um, there's been a lot of talk these days about how the church in America, even globally, is in this cycle of spiritual renewal, an awakening of sorts. In fact, like if we think about Easter and Holy Week, Good Friday and all those types of things, like that is really a time that even like speaks about and leads us to these moments of awakening and reviving of uh, like of our lives because it helps us see who he is, helps us get a glimpse of the reality of what he has done. And in the process of that, as we say yes to Jesus, our hearts are awakened and we are revived. Revival is part and parcel of the scriptures. Like it is the language that is used all over the Bible. You see continually words like revive us, renew us, awaken us, like we've been made alive in Christ, so on and so forth. So forth. And even the word repentance, the word repentance is revival language. The problem with using the word revival is that there are certain movements that have hijacked that word that we immediately start to kind of create our own interpretations and definitions and even expectations of what a revival is. But my favorite, and I know I already shared this before, but my favorite explanation of a revival is actually comes from Jonathan Edwards who was part of the Great Awakening back in the early days. It says this, Revival is not a special season of extraordinary religious excitement, which is typically what we think of, right? We think of like being drunk in the spirit and people giggling and falling off the stage type of stuff. And so we think of revival like, no thanks, right? But it's not a special season of extraordinary religious excitement, as in many forms of Latter American revivalism. Rather, it is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life. I love that. Think of Acts. That's normal spiritual life. To normal spiritual life after a period of corporate declension or decline. Periods of spiritual decline occur, occur in history because the gravity of indwelling sin keeps pulling believers first into formal religion and then into open apostasy. 
periods of awakening alternate with these as God graciously breathes new life into his people. Revival is a return to normal spirituality after a period of decline. And spiritual decline happens in history because we have sin in our lives and we slowly drift away. Like even the church is very much um, victim to this. We can get ourselves back into formal religion, kind of go through the ebbs and flows of just doing church, and even actually embrace pluralism where we come into church worshiping Jesus, but yet at the same try- time trying to worship the gods of our culture without even realizing it. We see over and over and over in Scripture this cycle of renewal, specifically in the Old Testament. If you look at Judges, it's like this constant cycle of renewal that happens, and it usually starts this way. There's an appearance of a new generation, and in Judges, it's 2.10, there arose another generation after Joshua. They didn't know the things of the Lord. They start to drift or move towards indifference, idolatry, and becoming like the world around them. And next thing you know, they start to feel the weight of their sin. There's burdens and issues that happen personally that begin to translate over into corporate or cultural living. And they cry out in repentance, God, where are you? We need you. And then God stirs up people to lead a movement of renewal or revival. Part of how God does this, how he begins to awaken and revive hearts, involves us and him. Like we need to move towards God's grace. We need to pursue God's grace in humility. And then we expectantly wait for God to do what God does best. We've, we've said this here multiple times before, is that we can't plan a move of God. We can't put it on the schedule and say, May 22nd, expect fire from heaven. Like, we, we can't do that. Like, that's not, what, we're not God's, you know, like, setter of his schedule. Like, but what we can do is we can prepare our hearts for a move of God. We can do what we can do. So here's why I feel the need to address this today. It's because we just celebrated Easter. We just spent time meditating on the death of Jesus and celebrating his resurrection. But yet, but yet, we can still miss the impact and the power of the death, resurrection, and the ascension ascension of Jesus. Worst yet, we can come into church absolutely indifferent. We can still be unmoved by it. In fact, the celebration that we had last Sunday... Is it still prevalent today? Or was that just a symptom of the moment because it's Easter and I love Easter? Like, is there something inside of us that misses or doesn't understand the actual full weight and understanding of what the cross achieved and what the resurrection achieved? Like, what is the big deal? Like, why did God actually have to send his son? Like, what does that cause? What is the significance of the resurrection? And what does that even do for us today? Like, I want to do all that I can in partnership with the Holy Spirit to ensure that we come out of these Sundays and in the next few weeks to no longer be indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To walk out of here on fire for Jesus, awakened in our souls, our hearts absolutely revived, and for us to be moving in this path of renewal in our hearts and our minds. That's why I love Psalm 85, verse 6. Lord, will you not revive us again? What a great prayer. 
It's not like this psalmist is actually praying for conversion. That's not what he's doing. He already understands who God is, but something has happened in his heart and in the nation's heart that could be maybe defined as indifference, apathy, a cold heart, hard-heartedness, where he's understanding, it's like, God, we need you to do this. We're at that point of crying out, and he's going to wait expectantly for God to awaken their hearts. For what reason? So that they may rejoice in him. Worshiping God is by far the greatest desire and the greatest fulfillment that you could ever be part of. So I want to ask you these questions this morning. Do you need God to awaken you to who he is? Do you need God to awaken you to who he is? Do you need God this morning to show you, to reveal to you more of himself? Do you need God to revive your heart? Maybe that has grown cold, indifferent, hardened, or maybe you are torn between Jesus and something else? Have you lost sight of who God is, namely his holiness? Have you forgotten the condition of your heart apart from Jesus? I want you to know, God desires, he absolutely desires to awaken you, to revive you, for that's why he came. And here's the thing, all revival requires an awakening. We have to first wake up. We need God to wake us up to the holiness of who he is. And I want to explain to you what I mean by all of this. So I want to encourage you, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. You thought we were going to preach on Psalm 85. I just tricked you. Isaiah chapter 6. We need to wake up to the holiness of God. And we're going to see quickly how that begins the process of awakening our hearts and our souls so that we could be revived again. Without knowing the holiness of God, and I'm not just talking intellectually, theologically, I'm actually talking about like moving in our hearts. We can never truly understand or know ourselves. In fact, if we don't even understand the holiness of God, there's no way we can understand or even appreciate the cross or the resurrection. And that's why we need to come to this passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 to begin with. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Quick context. The first five chapters of Isaiah is a really sad picture, and it's a sobering reality of the condition of Israel's and Judah's hearts. 
They are entering a time of spiritual decline, and they are in desperate need of reviving, even though they don't know it. God's heart is fully on display in chapters 1 through 5 as he's reasoning with them. He even says to them, come, let us reason together. He doesn't need to. God is holy and just. He says, like, come, come back to me, repent, and I will, like, take your sins that are as red as, like, scarlet, and I will wash you, make you as white as snow. But come back, repent, and obey what I'm asking you to do. But at the same time, We see God's grace and his mercy in beautiful tension with his holiness and even his wrath. Because we see that if they do not, the pride of mankind will be humbled. Verse 1 of this chapter is not just some like great historical marker that we can go see. The Bible is historical. It's real. We can point back to the time when this king lived, etc., etc., etc. This phrase, the year that the king died is significant because of who Uzziah represented and what he represented for that nation. He reigned for 52 years. And Israel considered Uzziah to be the greatest king since Solomon. He started out strong. He was faithful in following the Lord. But as the text tells us in his story, like once he realized he grew strong, right? Once there was a peace that was achieved and there was prosperity happened, he started to believe in himself and he became arrogant and prideful and all this kind of stuff. And when he died, it left a massive hole in the heart of the nation because they were like, now what do we do? It was because of him we had peace. And it was because of him that we prosper. Now we have these other nations that are coming to threaten us. Like, what do we do? Uzziah ended his life in shame, arrogance, pride, a lack of vision of the holiness of God. He started to have lesser thoughts of God to the degree that he would profane the temple. He actually thought higher of himself than he thought of God. And because of that, the nation followed suit. The nation of Israel began to rest on their perceived peace, their self-achieved prosperity. The nation of Israel started to lower their thoughts of God and in consequence started to think higher of themselves. And here comes Isaiah, the first time he's introduced in this whole book. And he's no different than his brothers and sisters in Judah. And you can imagine even Isaiah himself going, what now? What do we do? you got to understand, okay, that during the reign of Uzziah, the nation of Israel and Judah, they still practiced the formal religion of Judaism. They still did all of the practices. They still did all of the sacrifices, but they did it with their hearts completely removed from God. They were just going through the formal practice of religion, but God himself was distant and in a very real way unreal to them complacency, coldness, not caring about the things of God, all of that is represented in that one phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died, but then something happens. I saw the Lord. Isaiah is in the temple worshiping. And it appears that for the first time, for the first time, he's being awakened to the presence of God. 
And you just got to like, like, don't just read this and be like, wow, this is just kind of crazy stuff. No, like try to put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a moment and just try to picture and imagine what he is seeing, right? Like this is like intense imagery. He's feeling hopeless because the king died and now, now he sees the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem, just the back part of his robe, is filling this grand and magnificent temple with his glory. Like you just got to imagine, he's just like, what is this? Like, I'm sure he was, like, overwhelmed and in awe of what he's seen, and yet at the same time, probably absolutely terrified of what he is seeing. Something's beginning to happen to Isaiah that has never happened to him before. He is awakening up to the reality of who God is. It's overwhelming. It's all-encompassing. He's seeing God as all-sovereign, as all-powerful, as all-knowing, and as all-holy. Even when all other nations, including Israel, would turn against him, this king is still on his throne. Like, even when kings and kingdoms will try to compete against him, all will fall in shame. And even when they and us turn to worthless idols, all of them fall and crumble before this holy God. Slow down and try to picture this. In the year where I lost hope, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, he sees these weird things, seraphim, crazy image. The seraphim are known as fiery ones. Like they don't know how else to explain it, but they're like, like beans of fire. And they have six wings, bizarre. Two of them cover their face, two of them cover their feet, and the other two, they just hover and fly around. Like it's just like, what in the world are these creatures. But then you start to realize the seraphim, because they're in the presence of God, they're holy in of themselves. Like they're pure and they are sinless. And yet even they, even they cover their face and their feet in the presence of the holy God. Pure and sinless, fiery things still feel unworthy in the presence of God. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. They are, like, these angels are so humbled that they don't want their face or their feet to be seen. And also, in this moment, like, we don't know how many there are. Like, the other throne room scene we get in Revelation, John sees thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these fiery beings. Like, what we hear and see that these angels are doing is they're filling heaven with worship. They are just filling it with worship. And what they say is so important for us to grasp. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. These beings are delighting themselves in God for his infinite holiness. Like, uh, we're going to talk some theology here this morning. Like, whatever God is, he is infinitely all that. If God is love, he is infinite in love. If God is holy, he's infinitely holy. And these angels just, like, don't know what else to say. And so they repeat the word holy, holy, holy 
everything is encompassed by his all-consuming glory. Like the, the three-fold use of this word is not like one of our songs where we just repeat a phrase a few times. Like this is meant to convey an emphasis. Like because they don't have the words to describe the otherness of God. Like how distinct he is. So they just say it over and over and over. Nowhere else in scripture do you see any other attribute being described in this threefold repetition. You don't see in scripture saying, love, love, love the God Almighty. The goodness, goodness, goodness. You don't see any of it. It's just holy. Holy is the only attribute that gets such emphasis. And when you hear this or when you read this, I want you to think of it this way. It's like perfection times perfection times perfection times ad infinitum. There is no one and nothing remotely close to him. They are delighting in the holiness of God. In fact, their worship is so loud, it's shaking the very foundations, and the temple is filled with smoke from the incense altar, which is a symbol of the felt presence of God. Powerful image. And in that moment now, we hear Isaiah's first words that he speaks in this whole letter. Verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me. Why would Isaiah say this? Seriously, I want us to think about this for a moment. Like, why would Isaiah say this? This is so important. This is essential for us to grab if we want our hearts to be awakened to the reality of who God is. Woe is me. That's not just like him saying, oh man, this is going to be bad. Like, like it, I am un, I'm, I'm undone. Like, like, not just like, I'm just going to cry a lot, I'm undone. Like, I am lost, I am ruined, it's over, I'm going to die. That's what he's saying. Those are the first words out of his mouth when he's in the presence of this holy God in this scene. What would make Isaiah say this after seeing this magnificent and majestic and beautiful, terrifying sight? Like, why doesn't he just skip in the presence of God and try to high-five him? And then maybe even applaud the angels for the light and smoke show? Woo! Yeah! All he can say in the presence is, I don't even deserve to be here. I'm done. Like, that's, that's heavy. Like, in that moment, Isaiah, if God does not intervene, his life ends now. Isaiah said what he said because it's the only thing. I want you to wrestle with this. He said what he said because it's the only thing that one can say when one is awakened to the reality of God's holiness. That's the only thing you can say. He's in this temple worshiping. He's never experienced God this way. 
His religion has never impacted his heart before, but now he's caught up in who God is, and he's like, it's over. But yet we know that's not the end of the story, but what we need to understand, and when we start thinking about Good Friday, and we start thinking about Easter, we need to know that seeing and knowing God for who he is, specifically in his holiness, is absolutely necessary for us to see and to know ourselves. Because we need to understand that we have a significant problem. And this is why I want to spend some time here talking specifically about the holiness of God. The culture in the church today do not like to talk about the holiness of God. In fact, we tend to water it down a little bit. We, we tend to neglect the holiness of God, where this attribute of God can tend to be forgotten, where we grow indifferent to, because quite honestly, we don't like the results of what happens when we confront the holiness of God. Right? We don't want to see just really maybe how bad we are. We don't even want to see really that God is just. We don't want to believe that God is full of wrath. We just want a sentimental God. We want a God that will just say, it's okay. We want a God who we believe whose top job is to love us and to serve us. Like our culture is like everything is okay. Everything is okay. But when we look at the holiness of God, we are immediately confronted with something completely other. He calls the shots. He doesn't conform to anything or anyone. If we never understand the holiness of God, friends, we will never understand the weight of our sin. We will never understand our great need for a Savior. Therefore, we will actually never grasp the depth and the scandal of the cross. We will never see the actual real joy and hope that's found in the resurrection or the significance of the ascension of Jesus. We need to see the holiness of God. And as long as we think that there is some hope for humanity to our problems by ourselves and through ourselves, there's very little chance that we will generally see God for who he is. Without holiness, scripture says, no one will see God. Nor is there any hope we, for us who can continue to think that we are as bad. Yes, I make mistakes. Come on. I make, we all make mistakes, but we're not that bad. As long as I think I can solve my own problems, yeah, a little help from God, a little religion here, a little this there, I am actually sovereign, and I am actually the center of the worship, and God serves me. But God is holy. This attribute of holiness is given special prominence in the scripture, not to say that it's his greatest attribute, but it's an attribute that we need as sinful, broken people need to understand and to like, engage with. He's described as holy over 800 times in the Bible. He is the one who is truly other than. No one or nothing can remotely compare to him. The holiness of God distinguishes him absolutely from everything else. Even the sinless seraphim. Holy is the way that God is. He is the standard. He doesn't conform. He doesn't adjust. All who he is is holy. His love is holy. His love is distinct. It's set apart. His love is 
altogether different than anything else. His faithfulness is holy. His goodness is holy. His grace is holy. So on and so forth. He's not a better version of something or someone. He's not holier in degrees to, but he's altogether different. Holiness is not your greatest thought of purity, and then that's God. Like, we're sinful. We can't even even have a divine thought of holiness. It's so otherly. Psalm 29.2, we are exhorted to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. Exodus 15 verse 11, Lord, who is like you among the gods, who is like you glorious in holiness, revered in praises. Isaiah 40, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Over and over and over. And Proverbs 9.10. This is why this is important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We need to know the holiness of God. And in this story, and just like it happens to us, God is the one that confronts us with this holiness. But here's the challenge with the church. Rationalism has really entered our theological way of thinking. We tend to be the ones who decide what is theologically right or wrong instead of having the humility to do theology at the foot of the cross. Rationalism comes and begins to tell us that God's wrath is not as bad as it looks to the degree that we can take the Old Testament God and say, that's the mean, angry God, and then look at the New Testament God, like, this is a different God, I like this one. But you actually don't realize that God actually talked more about judgment in the New Testament than than the Old. We get very confused on this. Surely we can't be that bad I mean, overall, we're good. No, there's no way we're depraved and God wouldn't punish us. And so slowly what happens is that we get so infatuated with love to the degree we feel entitled to it. Instead of going, I don't deserve to be in his presence. I don't deserve his grace. I don't deserve his mercy. And not really even expect it. I mean, think of John 3.16 for a moment. I know a good portion of you can just like ramble that one off real quick. Like when we look at John 3.16, this verse, like what are the words and the phrases that are uh, like put on emphasis when we look at this verse? Typically it's, for God so loved the world that he gave. We're like, yes, I love that. Love that so much. But then you forget there's this word in there called perish. Why, why don't we ever focus on that? Oh, because we love the love stuff. We want the love stuff. Like, he gave things for me because he loves me. But why? So that we would believe in him and not perish, which means that God is just, which means that those who do not believe in the Son of God are still under God's wrath. That's justice. That's holiness. 
God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. We cannot be in the presence of God with sin. We have a significant problem in Isaiah in this moment. It's like, woe is me. I am undone because I am seeing the depths of this depravity. Not only do I do certain acts that are wrong to the very core of my being, my motives, my thoughts, even my unconscious leanings are completely depraved. I have this rebellious streak inside of me that constantly wants to put myself number one over him. Like, he's seeing this. In any time we fail to remember the holiness of God, I'm telling you, we begin to lower our thoughts of him. And when we lower our thoughts of him, we won't worship him for who he is. We will begin to use him. We will begin to try to think he owes me and just go through the routine. But we need to be awakened to the reality of his holiness. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. That's not Isaiah saying he has a dirty mouth. <laughs> Which my, I, I was just thinking about this. How many of you had moms or dads that said this to you? You watch what you say, I'm gonna wash it out with soap. Did anybody actually ever have that happen to them? Okay, I'm not the only one. Mom, it didn't work. Just, right? It's so disgusting. <laughs> but it's like, that's, that's not what he's saying. It's not like he told bad jokes or swore on occasion. That's not what he's saying here. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the king. He's recognizing the depths of his sin and depravity in the midst of the presence of God. When he says that I'm a man of unclean lips, this is a Hebraic understanding for the filth and sin of his heart. That's what he's saying. Jesus even taught that. Out of the mouth, right? is the overflow of the heart. Like you, your mouth reveals to you quickly what's in your heart. James chapter three talks about the evil of the tongue, right? Like if you can control the tongue, you're perfect because it's a reflection of the heart. I am a man of unclean lips. My heart is so depraved. Isaiah is saying there's an impossible gulf between me and God. There's nothing I can do. And it's not just me. It's everybody. I live amongst this people like this. And when we look at Isaiah's confession, I want to share with you three truths that you need to embrace when you start to think about your sin that we fight so hard in this culture. First and foremost, you have to feel the weight of your sin. Have you ever wept over your sin in front of God? Has your heart ever broken over the brokenness in your own life? You have to feel the weight of it. Our culture says, no, 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 don't. You do you, that's you, throw that stuff away. No, no. It's like, yes, there's unhealthy Guilt, unhealthy shame, 100%. But we have to feel the weight of this. Like, this is a big deal. There's severity to our sin. 
I am undone. I am lost. Do you realize that if you didn't put your faith in Jesus, you're perishing? God's wrath is on you. Like, that should cause some things. Like, there should be a sting in our conscience. There should be this, like, sense of shame. Not in the unhealthy sense, but, like, the sense of shame of, like, oh, my goodness, I had no idea I was this unclean. Like, there should be deep remorse and confession, a brokenness that begins to lead us to cry out to God, to help us understand that, man, I have an issue that cannot be remedied apart from Jesus. You have to feel the weight of it. And sometimes you just got to ask, Holy Spirit, show me my sin. Not out of, like, self-pain, but really out of a place of healthiness. Show me your holiness. And then the second thing that happens is you need to accept the responsibility for your sin. This is where we struggle today in our culture, is we don't want to accept the responsibility for our sin. Isaiah is owning it. He's confessing it. I am a man of unclean lips. Like, we tend to use a lot of the, like, cultural things that are propping up in our world. Like, we go, well, psychology has a way to explain it away. It's not really me. It's this. Sociology excuses it. In our economy, in our wealth, we pay it off for X, Y, and Z. But the reality is, is that we and we alone are the ones who are responsible for it. And not only that, we need to understand that our sin doesn't just affect us. It actually affects other people. It affects families. It affects our friends. It affects our schools. It affects everything. It's not in isolation. This is a significant deal. And so that's why we need to see this in the presence of the holy God and be like, it's me. Woe is me. I'm broken over this. I own this. What do I do? In fact, even in this moment, do you notice that Isaiah doesn't even say, God, forgive me? Because he doesn't even think, believe he deserves it. He's just hopeless in it. But this is where the beauty of the gospel is. Because Isaiah underestimated who God is. Because Isaiah thought that because God is holy and now I'm sinful and I'm in his presence, I'm done. But he underestimated the grace of God. Because now watch this. Then one of the seraph flew to him, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar of the tongs. tongs and he touched his mouth with it and said, Now that it has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. This is a powerful image of the cross. We need the fire from heaven, as it were, from the altar of incense, the altar where sacrifices were made to come and to cauterize our heart, to cleanse us, to purify us. This coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. In fact, listen, here's why I've been saying everything I've been saying. This coal reminds us that behind the love of God that takes away our guilt and forgiveness in the one that atones for our sin is a cross that also extracted the very cost for that forgiveness. Sin 
has to be removed so we can be in the presence of God. And Jesus is the one who took on that punishment. He lived the perfect life. And when he died on the cross, all of our sin and all of our punishments and all of our guilt fell on him. The full wrath of God. God fell on Jesus, so that's why if we believe in Jesus, we will not perish. Because when we believe in Jesus, now God sees us as righteous, as pure, as holy. So we can be in the presence of God where we can really feel this symbolic picture of saying, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for. Friends, the cross won't hit you if you do not understand the holiness of God. Why did Jesus have to die? Because the wrath of God had to be satisfied. Because God is just. And God knew we couldn't do it. So he knew there was one way. It was to send his son who was holy sinless and pure, to die our death, to take on the wrath of God. That's how. And when you grab hold of that, your heart awakens like never before. How can you not cry out holy? God, you're so holy. And it's this beautiful tension. Like, God, I can't believe I'm in your presence. And at the same time, I can't believe you love me. You did this for me. And now I delight to be in your presence because I didn't deserve this, but you did it for me. And this is why now he goes on, who will go for us? He's eavesdropping on God's missional call. And Isaiah's like, man, how could I not go? How could I not say yes? How could I not serve him? I can't believe he saved my life in this moment. Now my guilt is removed. I'm in. God, I'll go. God's like, great. Here's your mission. Go to people who are never going to listen to you. Your whole ministry is going to be outwardly a sign of failure. They're going to listen. They're not going to hear. In fact, you just tell them that because the reality is when they're already choosing to not hear Jesus... When they hear the message of salvation, it just hardens their heart even more. That's why Paul would say the aroma of Christ is like salvation to some, like life to some, and death to others. But because he understood what God has done for him, Isaiah was all in. Regardless of where the nation was going, regardless of where the culture was going, he understood and his heart was fully awakened. So I want to ask you, as I wrap up, do you need God to awaken you to his holiness this morning? And if so, I want Malachi chapter 3 to kind of be a passage that you meditate on and you pray over and you think about See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The Lord will seek you and will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delighted. See, he's coming, speaking of Jesus. But who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. 
He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord. Friends, pursue the Lord. Go after Jesus. Know him. He will show you himself. He will. This is why he came. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they would know you. And as you do, I want you to confront his holiness and allow the fire to purify you, to refine you. Because it's at that moment where we really start to taste and see and understand the grace of God. Go after him. Pursue him. Pray, Lord, would you revive me? Lord, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you that you do not adjust yourself for our sake, that you are God and you are holy. God, and I thank you that when we look at the cross, man, not only do we see this beautiful image of the love of God, the love you have. But we also see justice. We see wrath. Not for us. The wrath was poured out in your son because you loved. Lord, what you have done for us is beyond comprehension. No wonder the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. You are altogether different. There's no one like you. Jesus, I pray you would open our eyes to see you, to help us understand your heart as we look at your incarnation, as we study you in scriptures. Lord, I pray that we would understand that without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And that's why we need you. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. A holy God coming into this sinful and broken world. How can it be? How can it be? Christ's name.